Good morning, afternoon, or evening to everyone. My name is Frank Place, and I am the director of the Policies, Institutions, and Markets CGIR Research Program, or PIM as we call it. I am pleased to welcome, welcome you to today's webinar on tenure security and landscape governance of natural resources. The theme of the webinar relates to the work of PIM's flagship on governance of natural resources. And today we will hear from the flagship leaders as well as experts in the field who both look retrospectively at how far we have come or not on, on research in this area, as well as thoughts on future priorities. Their thoughts are based on a set of tenure and governance briefs that they authored um, that have been completed and are noted in our webinar advertisements and so you can find links to them there. This topic is one of my passions and I'm very happy to be reun reunited with many former colleagues and collaborators today on the panel. Uh, when I was researching tenure issues back in the day, um, most of the research was about understanding tenure and governance arrangements, what opportunities and constraints those may present for agricultural development, and how one might adapt programming and interventions to those realities. Some of that research persists and is needed, but now there is much more research around testing approaches or interventions that can address identified tenure insecurity or governance ambiguity issues. Reflecting that, recent research on tenure and governance under PIM has increasingly looked at innovations, policies, approaches, or evidence that can feed into decision-making of governments, NGOs, and other actors. As such, it is broad in scope. We cover uh, issues related to farmland, rangeland, forests, water, other common lands, and in various countries and locations where partners are working to solve tenure and governance challenges. Thus, the retrospective syntheses on tenure and governance that form a key part of the webinar are very important to help us draw lessons. And furthermore, our experience shows that choices had to be made on which research topics were most deserving of our funding. And this will certainly continue into the future. And therefore, the forward-looking briefs uh, looking at how tenure and governance is, uh, are critical for the five impact areas of the new 1CGIR and what priority areas attention lie ahead will be extremely useful for the CGIR and other researchers. So now, before I introduce our first speaker, let me mention how our webinar will work. The Q&A session will be at the end of the program after all of the speakers. Throughout the presentations, I encourage you to type in your questions in the chat window on the right side of your screen. We will, after the present presenters, we will have a little bit of a panel discussion and we have prepared some questions in advance, but we would like to integrate your questions in as soon as we can. Um, and when you submit those questions, type in your name and organization uh, along with your question. And then we will begin to try, try to pose them to, to the speakers. And then finally, we are recording the webinar and we'll make it available on the PIM website shortly after the event. So now let me introduce the first speaker. Uh, who is Ruth Meinzendick. Ruth is a senior research fellow at IFPRI, and she's co-leader of the PIM flagship on governance of natural resources, along with Ann Larson, who's also on the panel. She is also the coordinator of the CGIR program on collective action and property rights, or COPPRI as we know it. So uh, she, there is no one better place to give, <laughs> give this opening uh, talk than Ruth. So over to you, Ruth. Thank you very much. Um, it's real. I'm not going to try and say everything that we've done under Flagship Five uh, on governance of natural resources, but I want to give a little bit of a flavor of where we're coming from. Um, 
And we've had sort of two broad areas, we call them clusters, one on enhancing tenure security and one on governing shared landscapes. But in fact, the two overlap a lot. Um, on the next slide, we have a next, yeah, the key research questions. And I'm not gonna go through all of these now. I'm not gonna read them all to you because I'm gonna go through one by one, a little bit of a flavor of what we've done under them. On the next slide, we have, in terms of what are the drivers and consequences of tenure insecurity, a lot of the global research on this is on individual or household rights. And we've certainly done a lot on that. But I think two really important additions in what we've done is to uh, pay a lot of attention to women's land rights and tenure insecurity, both integrating that into a lot of the studies of individual or household rights, but also conceptualizing and specialized studies on that. And then um, and some of that has been done jointly with the PIM work on flagship on gender. And then also we've done a lot on collective rights. And this is really relevant for CGIR because we're dealing not only with agriculture, but with forestry, rangelands, and uh, water, and, and common property. So we have a lot on that. On the next slide, uh, we've also looked at what mechanisms and institutional arrangements can address threats and, and strengthen tenure. So not just studying this, but, but really what can be done. Here we have a body of work on looking at the formalization of collective rights um, and a long list of countries that we've engaged with policymakers in both forest rights recognition and participatory rangeland management um, to strengthen collective rights. Also uh, studies of the impacts of a lot of household or individual land certification programs, showing both what they do achieve and the, the limitations of that. Some innovative things on land banking in Nepal, for example, to allow landless people to get access to land for farming and hybrid tenure for water allocation in Eastern and Southern Africa and Madagascar, as well as how formation of user group associations and social alliances can enhance tenure security. And um, actually not just in this, but in a lot of this, we partnered with International Land Coalition and with other major actors. So partnerships have been a big key part of that. Next, uh, we have, you know, um, areas of tools and indicators. And I'm really proud of the, the range of tools that we've developed and how those are being taken up by a wide range of actors. Um, on this slide, I just have a couple of these. Um, the tools for joint land use planning um, in Tanzania and Ethiopia, uh, Bayesian, Bayesian belief network approaches that have been applied in Tunisia. And um, we've 
come up with innovative use of games, not as a research tool only, but as to actually strengthen governance arrangements uh, for water management. Uh, next. So when we come to landscape governance, it's really a, a key question is how can the interests and knowledge of the different actors that share a common landscape be identified and reconciled. And so a lot of the work we're doing is looking not just at individual plots, but at, in the landscape context. So the participatory land use planning has been a theme not only in the rangeland management, but developing um, sort of a game again for this in Laos and Myanmar on forests and wetlands with IMI. And then uh, tools for this uh, inclusive multi-stakeholder processes. C4 has a lot of these uh, tools that have been refined with, uh, with the different multi-stakeholder uh, platforms, World Fish, um, the Co-Resilience Initiative, uh, and just a, we have a lot of these tools as well. Next. We've dealt explicitly with the political economy processes because uh, um, tenure is such an inherently political topic and land in, and water are both really uh, very sensitive. So really understanding that is important to get equitable outcomes, especially for the poorest. Uh, we've emphasized that and we have really clear examples of this from the Maya Biosphere Reserve in Guatemala and the Tunisia rangeland policy implementation. So a number of these cases we can show where the political economy has contributed. Uh, so next. So we have a lot of accomplishments. Um, really impact on the ground. And so this has, we can show this in terms of the achievements of um, large areas of, of for example, um, pastoral tenure security in, in uh, Ethiopia and, um, and Tanzania. We can show this in terms of the um, the a whole range of areas in forestry of impacts. The Maya Biosphere Reserve. Our studies have contributed to them really being willing to renew the community concessions and reaffirm the rights of of indigenous communities to that land, and then our impact on the ground in India, we partnered with the Promise of Commons and uh, Foundation for Ecological Security and over 80 partners are now trying to scale this up to work on securing tenure, improving governance in order to achieve improved livelihoods and, um, and so imp improving the livelihoods and also improving environmental security. 
for 30 million acres is the ambition. So this is really, we've achieved a lot within PIM. But now CGIER, uh, there's the uh, shift to the one CGIER. Um, and there are five impact areas in that. Nutrition, health, and food security, poverty reduction, livelihoods, and jobs, gender equality, youth, and social inclusion, climate adaptation and mitigation, and environmental health and biodiversity. So the question is, what is the role of tenure and governance research in achieving those impact areas? And not only for one CGIR, but we hope that uh, this work doesn't end with PIM and that other partners will also uh, take up the mantle of, of really furthering research on tenure and governance. So the question is, what is this relevance? Um, in order to address that, we thought that it would be important to not just have those of us who were involved in, in the PIM tenure and governance work say, yes, this is really important, but to bring invite outside experts in each of these areas, people with real credentials in each of these impact areas to say why uh, tenure and governance are important. So on the next slide, we have a whole set of briefs highlighting this. We're going to, what, uh, we have two overarching briefs, one by Krista Anderson on landscape governance, uh, what is it and what is it good for, and Brent Swallow on tenure security and why it matters. And then we have briefs on each of the five impact areas. And Barrow on uh, the environmental impact area, Naina Javeri on, on gender, Nancy McCarthy on, on climate change, Renee Oyono on uh, poverty, and Nancy Johnson on health and nutrition. Um, we have five of these uh, brief authors with us today that will be talking about this. And so um, uh, without further ado, I'd like to take this uh, and introduce uh, our next speaker. So, um, and uh, thank all of the partners who have been involved in PIM Flagship 5. So, um, Thank you. Thank you all. This has been an incredible uh, collaborative effort, uh, such a really great uh, collective undertaking from, from all of these partners. And we're hoping we get some more time to work together in the future. Um, so thank you all very much. And uh, let me then go to, uh, on the next slide, uh, I'm really pleased to introduce Brent Swallow. Uh, he's a professor of agricultural economics at University of Alberta in Edmonton, uh, Canada. And uh, he was a C CG scientist for 18 years, uh, trustee of Bioversity International 
and member of the Water, Land, and Ecosystems Independent Steering Committee for the last four years. Brent started out working on pastoral property rights during his PhD at Land Tenure Center, University of Wisconsin-Madison, and then worked with ILRI, um, and continuing work then from there uh, in tenure issues regarding to uh, water, watershed management and forestry at ICRA. Um, so he's, then his research at University of Alberta is more eclectic, including property rights and women's economic empowerment in Peru, farmland preservation in Canada, and now the economics of hope in Tanzania. Brent's proud to have been affiliated with Capri for many years to see the deepening of that work within PIM and to be with so many friends at today's event. Brent, without further ado, over to you. Thanks a lot, Ruth. And uh, just reiterate that it's great to see old friends um, again and to see the interest in this session. Uh, and thanks for that introduction, that kind of review of PIM, which is a lot of new work for me. So it's great to see that. Uh, next slide, please. So here's a quick overview of what I will say in the next nine minutes or so. Uh, just a quick uh, definitional slide, uh, just highlighting some points about why tenure security, what, why is it important. Um, review the links between tenure security and insecurity and, and development objectives, particularly the sustainable development goals. Uh, and my last slide kind of presents elements of our of kind of continued research on this area for 1CG. Next slide, please. So we have a kind of a formalish definition of tenure, and you can see the different dimensions of tenure which are raised by this. So uh, it, it looks at different ways that people relate to the land in terms of uh, occupation, use, stewardship, protection. It refers to uh, the right holders, uh, uh, the conditions under which different uh, people access and use those resources, the length of time, and that's often what we think of as tenure itself, uh, but the ten as used in the literature, it's this broader concept, uh, the purpose, the ways, and the responsibilities. So it has right holders and duty holders as well. Um, in this, in the literature, as well as in this presentation, I see land kind of equating land or land tenure to be land-based natural resources. So things associated with the land, a broader view than uh, just cultivated land to also include grasslands, forests, water, uh, and importantly, as PIM has done in the last couple of years, the broader landscapes, watersheds, and ecosystems in which those different resources interact. Uh, as well as the different values that they hold uh, and confer on people who use them. And, and this gets us closer to perhaps indigenous views of, of land as being also having spiritual dimensions. Land right holders can be individuals, groups, or households. And often rights are, are of individuals are nested within rights uh, of groups and, and families. So one of the causes of uh, frequent causes of land tenure insecurity are when we have contested claims by others. So there is one group that has a claim and others that have claims to the same resources. 
may be ambiguities or conflicts between customary and statutory governance. And some level of ambiguity and conflict actually may be expected over longer term. Sometimes tenure insecurity is actually deliberate as part of deliberate government policies, I would say, as in the case of China. Um, sometimes it's the result of failure of government implementation. Uh, and sometimes as response to new pressures like climate change that Nancy McCarthy will talk about in a minute. Next slide, please. Uh, what does the theory tell us about the, the important links between security and development? Frank mentioned some of these early on. Um, we have things like the tragedy of open access, uh, the possibility that tenure insecurity leads people to have short um, time horizons in which they're using resources and leading to uh, soil and resource mining, uh, underinvestment in land improvements with long-term payouts. And this is increasingly uh, in, seen as important globally, is that we have more sustainable soil management and land management. Um, uh, and, and much is made in the literature of restrictions on tenure security as undermining the collateral value of land and therefore access to credit. At the social level, a uh, broader view, we think about inequalities in tenure, uh, possible people who are disadvantaged by tenure arrangements who are then pushed out of the best land onto more fragile land, uh, lack of markets limiting transition from lower value to higher value land uses, um, and unresolved conflicts which are worsened by the extreme events. At the landscape scale, so if we take a landscape perspective as PIM has done in much of its work, uh, we can think about different parts of landscape which might be particularly important for landscape function, but particularly vulnerable to insecurity and, and conflict. Um, and also, uh, if we think about uh, a broader landscape view and interactions with agriculture and environment, we could think about tenure insecurity contributing to this Jevons paradox of expanding of areas when of cult, areas cultivated when you have greater productivity, which is uh, we call the rebound effect and, and Jevons paradox. Next slide, please. The so for one CGIR uh, is several of these uh, goals: SDG one on poverty, SDG two on hunger, SDG five on gender equality, SDG ten on reduced inequalities, uh, SDG sixteen on peace, justice, and strong institutions. All of those interface strongly with research on tenure. There are two particular four, depending on how you see them, four measures uh, uh, and two indicators uh, of that specifically look at tenure within the sustainable development goals. Indicator 1.4.2 has these two dimensions, indicator 5.8.1 also has two indicators. So these are have been embraced at the broader global level, also embraced uh, within the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Uh, uh, several articles deal specifically with land and land-related rights. Uh, the qu quick review of the evidence is that hundreds of millions of dollars are invested each year by development agencies in tenure initiatives uh, and particular examples like the uh, African Union Protocol on the Rights of Women in Africa. Next slide, please. 
Uh, some of the evidence that uh, we, I see from a more global view, uh, but also that PIM and has contributed to, uh, is that these are incredibly important, is that we much of the world's land is outside of registration systems, um, especially in Africa. Uh, repeated studies and repeated um, systematic reviews have shown that tenure and security does reduce investment in land. And as we think about more sustainable forms of agriculture, that's going to become more and more fundamental. So agronomists and others can no longer ignore tenure issues. Um, however, there's little evidence that tenure and security does affect credit markets. That's probably been overstated in the literature. Um, we have uh, many of the things which are done to try to increase investment in agriculture may have unintended negative consequences uh, at the in terms of the equality of rights to resources uh, for uh, different groups, uh, for resource poor farmers and for women. Next slide, please. Uh, this is this is a slide about how how is evidence generated, and Ruth gave us a quick overview of that uh, uh, within PIM. Uh, so, but just in in, in general. Uh, studies can look at that look at technology adoption as frank did uh, often suffer problems of endogeneity and internal and external validity that need to be addressed uh, so it's easy to reach um, misleading conclusions in this area um, if also uh, if we think about women and women's empowerment that we may need to make sure to look at issues of intersectionality uh, it may not be all women, but particular groups of women that we want to focus in on. Uh, a whole variety of methods uh, should be taken, including more historical studies, more participatory studies, as Ruth described, mix of quantitative and qualitative. Uh, PIM, has, uh, PIM scientists have participated a lot in systematic reviews of literature, which are very important. Um, and and there are, because of the interest of development agencies in this area, there are opportunities for uh, looking at pilot tenure uh, certification programs and monitoring those uh, possibly through with treatment and control through more randomized control trials. Next slide, please. Okay, so this is the last slide of some of my suggestions for a future agenda in this area. Uh, continue much of what PIM has done. Uh, in terms of tenure security in, that, in the landscape scale, taking a nested approach. Uh, there are also these opportunities to leverage even more ambitious partnerships. I think that will be important for 1CG. Um, think specifically about the rights of Indigenous peoples and local communities, um, and generally think about the multiple interactions uh, of uh, tenure security in terms of food, gender, poverty alleviation, and just to finally uh, what look for opportunities to harness expertise from people who happen to be at universities like me, uh, where there is special interest in identification, historical and anthropological studies. So I'll end there. Thank you very much. Back to you, Ruth. Thank you very much, Brent. Uh, it's great to to get your take on all of this. Um, I'm going to now turn to Krister Anderson, who's a professor of political science 
and director of the Center for the Governance of Natural Resources at the University of Colorado at Boulder. His research is about the politics of environmental governance and focuses on the role of local institutional arrangements in explaining variation in environmental policy outcomes, mostly in Latin America. And he's been involved uh, in external evaluations of Kim, among other programs. So, Krister, we look forward to hearing from you. All right, thank you very much, Ruth, for that kind introduction. And uh, thank you all for tuning in uh, during what's very busy time of the year. Trying to dodge the sunlight here. Hope you can see me okay. Uh, so, uh, before I dive into the substantive part of this presentation, uh, I'd like to thank Ruth Meinzendick and Ann Larson and several PIM supported researchers who provided uh, excellent inputs on this document that I'll be presenting. I learned a lot from all of you. And next slide, please. So, why did I write this brief? Well, apart from Ruth and Ann asking me to do so, uh, they also, when they asked, uh, explained that this brief would really help accomplish two goals. First, to clarify the essence of governance. It's a concept that is thrown around a lot, but often with an acute lack of precision and nuance. And then second, to explain how landscape governance is quite different from the more traditional sectorial governance model. So uh, next slide, please. Here's what I'll try to cover in this short talk. So I'll start by proposing a general definition of landscape governance, and then talk about the problems that landscape governance processes seek to address. I'll then show you a graphic representation of kind of a stylized and simplified governance process, which I hope can be used to unpack the different stages of, of the landscape governance process. We'll then end by discussing the role of researchers in this process and conclude by suggesting some areas for future research. So next slide, please. So what is landscape governance? Well, this here's a quote from the brief itself, the definition that I propose there. The decision-making processes that seek to create and enforce socially binding agreements regarding people's interactions with one another and the landscape around them. I like this one because it's quite general, but it also gives you some idea of what is involved in this process and what it seeks to accomplish. It refers to uh, socially binding agreements. So what are those? So I'll have this kind of a color-coded definition here. So refer to really, so it's a, it's a, I guess, a mouthful, but uh, rather than just saying rules, which is often used in definitions of, of governance, I think it's more than just rules. So by agreements here, refer to the rules, norms, strategies, commitments, and pledges by the different participants. And the socially part of the, the definition here, the word socially refers to the participants who agree to follow, but also to monitor and enforce those agreements. And then the binding part of that, the socially binding agreements, 
concept is that you know actors can use a mix of both rewards and punishments to do this. So uh, that's uh, kind of the formal part. Uh, I think it's important that we do have a definition that says a bit more what governance is than merely saying, well, that's what governments do, or that's what uh, you know, a group of people do to steer behavior. I think we need a bit more specificity when we refer to, to governance. And I think that will help us analytically if we're more precise in, in our understanding. So what type, type of questions do these socially binding agreements address? Well, in the landscape governance context, they can address questions like, how much forest land can a landowner clear each year? When are farmers allowed to burn their crop residues? Or where may pastoral groups take their cattle? And so on. Next slide, please. Thank you. So what's the problem? Well, let's take a step back and ask yourself, if landscape governance is supposedly a solution, what problem is it trying to solve? I see landscape governance as a response to the lackluster performance of more centralized sectoral approaches to governance uh, that often pitch economic interests, social interests, political interests against one another which tend to favor big economic interests of a few at the expense of many small-scale producers. And in the end, that approach tends to lead to rather ineffective piecemeal programs that are quite limited in what they accomplish in terms of inclusive human well-being. So next slide, please. So landscape governance has the potential to improve on this more traditional governance approach that I just described. Some early evidence suggests that it can, under some circumstances, deliver better results for the rural poor, including better tenure security that Brent just talked about, more political representation, and with that more social dignity, more recognition, more economic opportunities, and even improved ecosystem services. So the, the evidence here, however, it is early. It's rather scant still, I should say, and lots of opportunities to, to continue to do more research to examine the conditions under which this landscape governance approach is effective and when perhaps it is not. Next slide, please. So here is an excerpt from the brief, uh, this stylized, simplified figure or a, a depiction of landscape, a landscape governance process. So I included this because I think it, it may give researchers or others who are interested in landscape governance a sense of what are the specific types of actions, behaviors, uh, and other features that are part of the landscape governance process? 
So this figure really tries to, to unpack some of those features so that future research can be a bit more specific about the reasons why traditional governance is sometimes inferior to landscape governance approaches. Uh, so the kind of specific actions are um, kind of highlighted in this. I'm not going to go into the, the, the specifics here, but just a couple of things to point out here that this shows the, the governance process and the actions and decisions by many different actors that are involved in a simplified way, but it, it focuses on that, just the landscape, the local level. It's also important to recognize that, of course, the decision-making that goes on at that local level is often influenced by decision-making and governance processes at other levels of governance, uh, at perhaps a regional level or even national and international levels, and that there are some connections there, um, but that varies from context to context, the extent to which other levels of governance influence and are influenced by this local level decision-making process that we call landscape governance. So, um, one of the questions here, I don't know if you can see up here in red, um, on top of the slide, there are many different actors, potential actors that may be included in the decision-maker making process. And one of those actors uh, are the researchers. So I imagine that many uh, of us here in, on this webinar are involved in research. And so it may uh, be that we should talk about that a little bit. What is the role of researchers in this process? If you can go to the next slide, please. So what roles should researchers play in all of this? Well, I think that one of the real neat things about the landscape governance process is that there is room for researchers to be more than just passive observers uh, and get them to get involved a bit more actively in the process. They can contribute, so we can contribute with relevant findings that can help inform governance decisions. We can also raise questions about assumptions that some actors may hold without much scientific support. And one of the most important research functions, I believe, is the facilitation of social learning about the effects of previous governance decisions and agreements. Next slide, please. So within PIM-supported research, there are many, many examples of researchers performing such a facilitating role in the landscape governance process and Ruth talked about them, Brent mentioned a few already. Uh, I'd just like to, to mention uh, three. Uh, so Fiona Flinton, uh, Nilri researcher, for example, uh, worked in, with actors and uh, governmental authorities, as well as local user groups in both Ethiopia and Tanzania to promote this participatory land use planning process. It's one example. Uh, uh, Ann Larson, Sarmiento Barletti, and other colleagues within C4 uh, produced a self-assessment tool to support learning about governance decisions in multi-stakeholder contexts. 
And then uh, Ruth and colleagues at IFPRI worked with the Foundation for Ecological Security in India using these innovative decision-making games as tools for to support the deliberation discussions in user groups about landscape governance reform. So uh, next slide, please. And this is just to conclude areas for future research. I highlighted three areas that I think are um, kind of urgent in this area where we should know more than we currently do. So one area that I think is really ripe for the picking, so to speak, to, to explore more how behavioral science can help us do better co-production of usable science with stakeholders. So under what conditions are researchers and decision makers more likely to engage in really productive working relationships and partnerships? There's a lot of talk about the opportunities, but also pitfalls of private sector involvement and in landscape governance. There are many opportunities, but how do we avoid the pitfalls that also come from working as researchers more closely with private sectors? And then finally, developing and applying policy simulations. The, the games used in India, uh, for example, I think can also serve to, to work with policymakers and decision makers to simulate what are the likely effects of different policy innovations and interventions. So thank you. And I'll just end with a, a picture of one of my favorite landscapes that I work in, uh, in the Bolivian lowlands. This is from a forest community outside San Borja in the Beni. So thank you very much. And back to Ruth. Thank you, Krister. That was a really very comprehensive uh, foundation on this, which is a really complex topic. Um, now we'll turn to Nancy McCarthy, uh, another former collaborator and key person in the CAPRI program. Uh, Nancy um, earned a PhD in agriculture and resource economics from University of California, Berkeley, and a JD from George Mason University School of Law. Uh, so in between those, she worked uh, with uh, first ILRI and IFPRI and then IFPRI. Um, in 2010, McCarthy founded Lead Analytics, a consulting firm with a focus on natural resource management, governance, institutions, property rights and land tenure systems, and responses to climate change. So, um, and she uh, has been a longtime collaborator. Nancy, we in the wake of COP10, you're, what you're talking about is uh, COP, the most Please. recent COP. <laughs> um, uh, what you're talking about is so relevant. So please take it away. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth, and for everyone for putting this session together and, and building those policy briefs, which are a great uh, compendium to look at these issues. So I'm going to just talk quickly through the some key evidence gaps I see with respect to climate change and landscape governance and tenure security. So at the household level, there is now a pretty rich body of evidence on the impacts of climate change on different aspects of households' livelihoods. But I think we still need to drill down further to look at the specific dimensions of tenure security and how these different 
dimensions actually affect farmers' incentives to adapt to climate change and make these resilience building investments. Another key evidence gap at this level, at the household level, is we know that 10-year security is often necessary, but not sufficient in and of itself <clears throat> to promote investment in adaptation. So we need to identify the complementary policies and mechanisms that can work in tandem with tenure security to really uh, promote a widespread adoption of adaptation techniques and investments. At the community level, we need a lot more evidence on how climate change risks and uncertainties affect the performance of communal resource management systems themselves. And in particular, this is really important to understand how is it affecting distributional impacts, the benefits and costs to the different users that are reliant on different communal resources. But at the same time, we also need more evidence on what's the potential role of these communal resource management systems to adapt themselves to climate change and to increase resilience. Okay. And at the third level now, at the broader landscape level, similar to the communal level, we need to identify how is climate change actually affecting the performance of different institutions that operate within a landscape, an often very complex landscape. And then secondly, we know that, so climate change is going to increase the value of flexibility in the regulatory framework to be able to respond to different changes associated with climate change and so we we need to understand how how can we there's some potential tension between flexibility in the regulatory framework and ensuring tenure security so what are the best designs what are the best mechanisms to ensure that we balance those different objectives to ensure both the, the ability to increase resilience and respond to climate change but also continued insured tenure security. So that's my very brief, rapid talk. Thank you, Ruth. Wow, you covered a lot in that amount of time. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, we'll now turn to Edmund Barrow. Grew up on one of Ireland's first formal organic farms and was planting trees at the age of six. These early experiences helped him focus on community level knowledge, institutions, rights, responsibilities, and governance. Wow, from such an early age. And learning from and with the rural people. These areas have been an underlying aspect of all the work Edmund has been involved with. He studied natural sciences in Trinity College, Dublin, and has a master's degree in drylands development. Worked in 20 plus countries in Africa and globally for over 40 years. Edmund is currently a consultant to community-based natural resource management and governance. And prior to this, he was director of IUCN's Global Ecosystems Management Program with responsibility for work on ecosystem-based approaches to adaptation and disaster risk reduction. Red list of ecosystems and dry land. He's extensive experience with sustainable development in different ecosystems, dry lands, forest, agriculture, pastoralism, uh, so, as you can see, he's uh, looking at the community and village levels, help pioneer forest restoration, participatory approaches to conservation and governance. So we look forward to hearing from you, Edmund. Thank you very much, Ruth. 
Um, I feel a bit overall by being in the presence of lots of very august and senior researchers in universities in the CG. I don't come from the CG, but I have worked in, in both environmental management for a long time and prior to that in what we call development. One of my learnings is that we, and it's, it's obvious to us all in a way, we depend on our, on our environment, but we tend to assume it. Environment is long-term, yet most of our work tends to be short-term. The economics, economic growth drives us to produce short-term results in terms of increased yields of food and fruits and so forth. We also tend to think in silos, although that is changing, which is great, and it's great to see some of that changing here. So it's not just the agricultural silo, it's agriculture and governance, or agriculture and integrated landscape management. Environmental issues really call for integration, which is a challenge because we tend to, in research, tend to be more focused on a technology, a species, a process. So we really need to make the case for sustainable environmental management as part of integrated landscape management, as part of agriculture, as part of range management, as part of life on the, in rural areas. And to give you a quick example, in Rwanda, I'm <coughs> supporting some IUCN work on very simple village landscape planning. And so far, over 300 villages have landscape plans, and they're actually implementing their landscape plans through the <coughs> performance process that is happening in Rwanda. And not only that, they are actually identifying areas where they need to do riverine catchment management, they need to do restoration of hillsides and so forth. So it's not just agriculture. So research, we need to strengthen environmental governance, which is already been talked about, but we need to introduce that word the environment in there and rights at the indigenous peoples and local community level. So accountability is more local and integrated. And here as Glasgow offices plenty of opportunities for this and to respect and enhance the management of our environment through, for example, ecosystem restoration, forest landscape restoration, nature-based solutions. One thing I want to get clearly across is food security is more than just yields and quantities. And that is, this is something that stayed with me since I was a very young boy, shoveling lots of manure and compost around the farm. That is the quality it's environmental sustainability that is so important. And one thing we tend to forget is the amount of post-harvest loss, losses that occur and the amount of wastage of food that takes place. If we reduce post-harvest loss and research methods of how to do it and reduce ways to reduce the waste in various countries, we will go a long way to achieving food, food equity. One last thing, and it's something again I've learned from my own experience, is conservation and development need to talk with, not at each other. Conservationists tend to talk with conservationists, environmental with environmentalists, agriculturalists talk with agriculturalists, agricultural research people talk with agricultural research people. 
we need more joint research. Bridging the gaps between in conservation and development. One of the challenges there is environmental research tend by its nature to be longer term than agricultural research. We need to publish jointly and we need to use the results of that such work to inform and influence and not just publish but inform people in ministries of finance and planning, agriculture and in conservation. With that, thank you very much Ruth. Thank you, Ed. That was really uh, coming with your breadth of experience that comes as very helpful guidance uh, for the way forward. And our last speaker today is Naina Javeri. She's been working in the field of community-based natural resource governance for over two decades. She has a PhD in geography from Clark University where her dissertation focused on a comparative analysis of equity perceptions among two different ethnic groups using the commons in a poor Himalayan region of Southwest China. Earlier, she worked as a professor at the University of Washington and Colgate University. More recently, she was a resource tenure specialist with Tetra Tech's tenure in global climate change programs supported by USAID. She's since worked on a number of consultancy projects including a preparation of C4's publication on forest tenure pathways to gender equality, a practitioner's guide. Uh, Nina, we look forward to hearing your thoughts on this. Yes, um, I hope you can hear me okay. For some reason, my camera it was working when we did our trial run, but now it's not working again. So anyway, I just want to um, thank you, Ruth. And also, I wanted to start by saying that um, the research by PIM5 and other leading researchers on gender and tenure security has been really bubbling away in the last few years. And there are a lot of very interesting findings at different scales. So I just want to quickly go through five main kind of knowledge gaps and research needs that came out of the review. Uh, the first is that um, we know that tenure security is actually a very complex uh, subject. Um, and a number of factors play a role in terms of people's perception, perception by, of women and men of different status uh, in kind of creating an aggregate sense of what tenure security is. And in this, you know, historical and cultural and demographic factors play a very important role. So it's very hard to standardize a, a notion of tenure security. But even more important, perhaps, we, at this point, we really don't have enough understanding of what strengthens or weakens tenure security exactly uh, because of the complexity of factors and there's a need for further research to distill out then which are the more important factors in creating this aggregate perception. Uh, the second is um, something perhaps that's been known for some time which is that if we're going to understand tenure security we can't just focus on the statutory or formal systems of recognition of tenure but rather that we really need to delve deep into the actual assertion of tenure rights for different bundles. And in this then, we have to understand the web of interests or the social context, the set of social relationships in which tenure is asserted. And so in that way, uh, we can get a much more clear understanding of how women and men of different backgrounds are able to assert particular rights and practice. 
The third is a point that's already been made earlier, but um, I think it's coming much more into focus, uh, which is that to understand gender tenure security, we really need to work uh, through an intersectional approach. And while there's a lot of talk of uh, the importance of an intersectional approach, uh, there's probably still not enough work done on exactly how to carry out such a type of research. Um, and there, there are a number of studies that are emerging across water, forestry, and pastoralism, uh, but perhaps there's a need to kind of still out then uh, what are the important components uh, in terms of a methodology. Uh, the fourth one is then, if we're going to look at the actual gender impacts of tenure security, then uh, we really need to kind of uh, move into the details of uh, the ways in which land rights regimes are very complex uh, in terms of their multi-sided and multi-scaled uh, dimension in terms of the webs of interest at work. Uh, but also we need to be able to look at land rights at the household level, not just in terms of privatized rights, but in, in terms of the various resource rights, whether on forest, um, water or pastoralism. And lastly, most importantly, perhaps, we need to really uh, zoom in much more clearly on gender roles and gender norms. I think it's a theme that's bubbling up much more clearly. Um, and lastly, then, I think um, yeah, one of the um, contributions of a group of uh, folk working in PIM5 has been that if we're going to work on women's empowerment and gender equality, we need to start to um, think about then different stages uh, in which uh, development interventions produce particular effects. So uh, their proposal was that we should look in design interventions and focus on questions of reach, and then uh, those that really enable benefits to be shared uh, across different groups of women and men. And lastly then, how do those two interventions subsequently lead to empowerment uh, of different women and men? And so I think this has really helped to open up the box in terms of design of intervention so that the work that uh, increasingly will need to focus on diagnosing the problems in a much more complex way can then enter into the issue of design of projects and programs. So I'm going to end there. Thank you. Thank you, Nina. That was a really great summary as well. So I can now turn it back over to Frank Place. Uh, if he were not PIM director, he's somebody we would have been uh, involving in both the research and in the summary. So I think there's nobody better placed to uh, guide us in this further discussion. Frank. Thank you uh, very much, Ruth. And thanks uh, for all the presentations. They were very, very interesting. Um, I just wanted to, uh, for those in the audience, please do send questions in that you have. We've, we've gotten uh, quite a bit of time, uh, half an hour, uh, to, to oppose them, so please get them in. Let me start with one question, uh, well, a couple of questions that came actually from Ed to, to the colleagues on the panel. And so he uh, asked, um, as, you, as you might, harping back to his presentation, how do we assure that environment is not just assumed and discounted, but is a core component of integrated landscape management. And related that, how do we break down research and development silos to achieve sustainable stewardship of our land and our one planet? So Ed himself may have a, a couple of comments to make, but I let me throw that out to the, the presenters first if they wanted to uh, say a few words about that. 
and everybody actually should be coming back on screen. I noticed that I'm just here by myself. So if everybody can uh, put their cameras on. <laughs> Thank you, Brent and Ruth and Krister and everyone. I don't know if uh, Brent or Krister uh, want to take take on that question. Maybe I, I think it might be closely linked to maybe Krister's talk about integrated landscape management and governance. So how how do we you know get environment more more prioritized in, in landscape integrated landscape management uh, work in general and research in in particular? I guess. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's a that's a great question, and and I like both of the questions that you posed. I suppose you know I'm a political scientist, so my take is political, and so if if we want uh, some aspect emphasized more, whether it's environment, the rural poor, uh, or whatever, somebody will need to speak up for those elements in that political process. Uh, I, and so, you know, we as researchers, I think, uh, could be uh, part of that voice that speaks up for the environment or for the rural poor or for more uh, practical and problem-oriented approaches rather than just the, the sectoral uh, silos that tend to dominate the current policy programs. Right? So who those protagonists or voices that speak up to the environment or the rural poor, who they are, I think will differ in different contexts, but certainly we as researchers have a role to play there. Um, and perhaps the role that we could play is related to your second question about the silos. Uh, doing more problem-oriented, solutions-oriented research that where the silos simply don't provide very good answers in research if you just take that narrow approach. But if if you really want to solve problems, you need to involve different sources of knowledge, uh, different expertise, um, different actors. And so that that perhaps as research, we can help break down those silos or the, the watertight <laughs> separations <laughs> between disciplines, and types of knowledge. That that would be my take. Great. Uh, thanks, thanks, Christian. Anybody else want to say anything on that, Brent? Just actually to follow that up, uh, Christopher's comment, his introduction, maybe think of work that we're doing here in Canada through my colleague Brenda Parley, uh, and Ruth is involved in this. Is kind of a different way of doing research with Indigenous peoples and that might be. Uh, you know, because they have this broader view of the land and, and see the land in, in a more holistic and more spiritual way, they often are sidetracked in, in uh, technical approaches to research, but research which embraces their Indigenous knowledge and responds to their priorities uh, often is quite different and is more impactful in longer term. So that might be one thing to think about is are we are how well are we working with indigenous groups that that have a broader view of the land and, and are there new ways for us to, to frame that research good thanks thanks uh brent also ed go ahead please 
You might be muted. Oh, there you go. I am not. I'm not muted any longer. Um, <laughs> but that, that, that's great because I think it shows up the point that indigenous peoples, especially, are very in tune with their environment, with how they feed themselves, with a, a more spiritual approach to land and this management. But how do we get that? How do we get that knowledge, that information across to decision makers in macroeconomic planning who think about, I need to increase the yields of maize and coffee by 100% in order to be able to buy sort of whatever it happens to be. So how do we, how do we, get, how do we get that knowledge from the indigenous people so it is respected through free prior informed consent and then be able to use to inf inform and influence so that government takes on the board the richness of indigenous knowledge. Canada may be a bit ahead of some countries, but in other places, it's definitely indigenous knowledge is still treated as if it was a something backward, something not useful. Yeah, maybe if I can interject there, I think that's a very important question. I think, it, I mean, it, it fits in a more general question of how do we get evidence used in decision making to begin with, first of all, um, because there's in this area, of course, there's a lot of vested interests and competing uh, <laughs> interests in tenure and governance. And so maybe that's maybe a first broad question is how do we, are we satisfied with the, the way the evidence is being used in decision making currently? Can we do a better job of it? And in particularly these these uh, these vo more more voiceless communities, uh, with, whether they're indigenous peoples and others, have a, a, a secondary challenge. And often they live in areas of the country that might be more remote and off the radar screen of uh, politicians and so forth. So, anybody want to uh, take on uh, that question, building on Ed's? <laughs> um, Anyone? <laughs> Ruth, go ahead first, kick it off. Hey, yes, um, I shouldn't jump in here, but uh, we've been dealing with this in India with uh, Foundation for Ecological Security and this whole Promise of Commons initiative. And part of what they are trying to do is to convey, um, uh, to try to show the value of commons and the environmental services of what are often seen as wastelands. And to, so part of what we've been trying to do there is work on showing the value of that and how the ecosystem services not only underpin all of agriculture, but have values uh, for the, the commons, the values are, you know, almost staggeringly high and on a par with other kinds of land uses. So that you, you start to say, oh, and there are some who will listen to numbers. Um, there are others I think who are, uh, you do have to have the stories and the pictures of what a degraded and an improved landscape look like, some of those kinds of things. But I don't know whether some of the other economists want to talk about the, the value of, the, of including this in models and all 
uh, or it's actually controversial also in India where some say that's, that's reductionist. Anyone who would like to follow up on that one? Well, if I could just go ahead, Nancy. Yeah. Yeah, I, just to ask Ruth to, how do they see it as reductionist? That, and I think Brent, you were at an International Association for Study of the Commons panel that was talking about payment for environmental services. And there are groups who are working on environment that say by putting numbers and values on that, that it is reductionist. Okay. I, I think, yes, it is. But if we don't put, if we don't include it in the numbers in any way, then it, they kind of get wiped off the table in a lot of higher level planning processes. And even at the community level, when communities start to have to put numbers on how much they would give how much they would have to pay for the same kinds of things that they receive from the commons now. If they, if they uh, degraded the environment, then they start to say, mm, maybe this is worth investing in. So you need investment, not only by governments, but by communities. And I think that's one of the advantages of what Christer was talking about in, in terms of environmental governance, that the state alone can't do all of this. The community alone isn't going to do all of this. And how do you bring those together? Great. I think this relates to a, a question that, or, or a comment that came in from Steve Lowry, um, you know, about reductionists and so forth. He said, so we researchers have long overlooked uh, that customary tenure rights are perhaps the most importantly, a marker of membership in the rural social system, providing a great variety of benefits beyond access to farming land and natural resources. Uh, and he says that the significance of these, some of these other benefits are insufficiently researched. Um, and social, socially secured rights are a head start when considering social resilience in the face of climate change, for example. So, uh, so I didn't know. So maybe I mean coming back to this, are we, uh, are we when we're when we're looking at uh, diagnosing tenure, uh, you know, uh, perhaps insecurities and the potential of, of interventions to to address those? Are we always reflecting on all the important benefits that are associated with uh, uh, customary rights? Anyone want to take that up? Nancy, go ahead. <laughs> I, yeah, I think especially as, as Steve pointed out, it, it's really interesting to try and think of what are the benefits to be gained, the sort of insurance benefits in the face of climate extremes or changing shocks and stressors of cust customary access to communal resources. And I think that is not well researched or understood or given value to be reductionist, uh, and I think there's a huge potential. Like there's, and that, and it's also, again, coming back to the flexibility versus credibility. You, you know, those being able to access resources sometimes, but not all the times, could be really potentially important under climate shocks. But it also, it could also cause tensions in terms of are people assured of those rights? It, what does it mean in terms of their set? 
tenure security if it's not a rigid sort of right that you're trying to uphold. So I, I agree it's a really interesting phenomenon that could have a lot of benefits under climate change. Great. I, I know Nana, I'll come to you in a minute, Christopher. I know Nana wants to comment on this one. So please, Nana first and then Christopher. Uh, yes, I just wanted to add that I think um, in some of the work on customary tenure issues, uh, one of the challenges has been that um, whether it's a sort of stereotype at work that very often customary tenure issues don't pay attention to questions of gender equality. And then really, how do we work with that system or however it's structured in terms of individual leadership or a governance body to introduce then um, principles of gender equality so that the rules uh, in practice over the course of a year and over different resources um, are kind of able to take into consideration then uh, women's rights, basically. And I think it's a very interesting challenge. And a number of groups in the forestry world have tried to work with uh, male chieftains and wives of chieftains and so on to try to bring into the kind of play um, of discussions on rights, uh, questions of gender equality. So that's also an interesting part because I think that clearly customer tenure is very important given the kind of area of land that it covers. But then uh, the question is of change and transformation also within that system. Great. Thanks, Nana. And now, Christopher, you wanted to yeah, I really uh, think that Steve hit the nail on the head, uh, this comment. Uh, I, I, I shared the sentiment that it's also something Brett, uh, Brent mentioned in his presentation on tenure, that we tend to focus on the economic advantages of tenure security and may forget about perhaps the most important are the social and even political aspects of uh, ancestral rights of customary tenure uh, uh, arrangements and having that legally recognized uh, the jury and the effect the political and social effects that that has that that may be what actually can lead to empowerment and to greater social organization greater cooperation and greater institution building perhaps more so than the economic aspects. I mean, it's, I don't think we need to pick a winner here, whether it's economic or social, but we shouldn't ignore those social and political benefits. And that may be what, what can really facilitate greater transformation in rural landscapes to have those uh, benefits, you know, in clear view. Great. Let me uh, then go to another question that just came in. You just mentioned, um, uh, institution building and a question that of a related nature has come in from Deborah Berry. She, she asks, uh, can Ed and Krister, and I think this could be open to others as well, uh, say more about how to organize and sequence the building of governance structures to go beyond their previous areas of control or jurisdiction? The landscape runs across administrative and political divisions, ecosystems, and settlements. So how has there been successful ones uh, who have accomplished this? And uh, how how did they do that? <laughs> I'll try and chirp in with a few comments. Sure. I'm sure Krista will be able to give a lot more detail. Um, <clears throat> stuff we're doing in integrated landscape management planning in Rwanda is based on the village structure. So the village is the entity. An X number of villages can, and the village internally discuss 
their governance arrangement, who has decisions over what, who owns what, who will do the communal management of the roadside, etc., etc. The next number of villages come together as a sort of a larger landscape unit. It could be a subcatchment, and so they work upwards. And the, the governance arrangements are worked out in negotiation within, within the village and then between villages. Another example which Deborah might know of um, is I was involved many, many moons ago when I had a lot more hair in my head in Turkana. And the Turkana pastoralists used traditional institutions to restore an area of forest of about 30,000 hectares at a financial cost to the forest department at the time of about $100. There they used traditional governance arrangements. This was back in 1980s to the early, 19, early 1990s. I happened to visit the place again two years ago and the forest was still there. The governance institutions were still there and still being used. The trees weren't necessarily the same. Some have been cut back, some have been used for charcoal, what have you, but there was a forest there. And it was the Turkana pastor said, this is our forest, not your forest. And that's an important governance lesson that we need to need to in integrate. Thanks, Ed. Anyone else want to chime in on that one? Uh, Ruth? Yeah, uh, just to put in a plug for work that Diana Suhardiman of EMI has done, on specifically this bridging of the different boundaries, uh, both sectoral and spatial boundaries, she's developed something, a game called Rule All, R-U-L-A-L, -L, as in Rule All, that's kind of, it, it looks almost like a Settlers of Catan type of layout, but what they do is they bring together the um, government officials from like forestry, environmental NGOs, and community members and each one has kind of certain objectives but then they have to do this land use planning to meet their objectives the trick is that everybody has to take on the role of a, of a different group so it's a way of getting an exercise of a game as an exercise in land use planning where it's trying to open people up to opportunities for, if you will, win-win solutions or at least coalitions and seeing things from others' perspectives. And in, I mean, I've become a really big fan of the role of the potential for games to be an opportunity for experiential learning. That's what we've been doing in India on water governance, but it's a way to, to kind of change sort of mental models of what is possible. So um, I can put, I'd be very happy to connect Deborah with Diana uh, and uh, there, we have work on that. Uh, Chris, go ahead. Yeah, thank you. That's a, a really good question from Deborah Berry. I, I think, uh, one thing that is often forgotten about when trying to strengthen the institution building process is the political motivations behind that. 
And I think that that can be a major barrier because at, at the end of the day, if there is a political way, if there's a political will, there is a way to do it. Uh, but often there is not much of a political will to address landscape governance issues or to pay more attention to customary rights or to the situation of the rural poor. And, and that's often the main barrier. So we can talk about, uh, you know, the details of how we structure institutions and, you know, lands, how to make landscape governance institutions work better and fiddle with those details. But unless there is real political commitment and backing and somebody to uh, speak up for the rights of those who are marginalized and don't have much voice perhaps currently in that governance process, we're not likely to, to get very far. So I, I just think that we need to try to figure out and do more research on what is it that motivates decision makers to really invest in these processes, to come around to realize that it is a better way often uh, to, to uh, have a more comprehensive, holistic approach in, in managing rural landscapes in, in this alternative fashion. But um, the political science perspective again. Great. Um, I had a couple more questions come in. I'm going to combine a couple of them into one one question. I, because one, one, one has noted the significant trade-offs perhaps in uh, looking at uh, longer-term management in, in areas where there's a lot of uh, high productive agriculture, like vegetable, the, the case was mentioned about irrigated vegetable gardening. There could be significant trade-offs of the short-term and the long-term, of short-term livelihoods with longer-term. And the other question that came in was wondering about whether decentralized management, uh, places where there's uh, devolution and decentralization in government structures makes it, lends it a bit easier to have this integrated landscape management approach. So I guess the general question is, you know, where, where are there easier opportunities for the uh, landscape management, integrated landscape management approach to work and where are the more challenging, what are the more, some more challenging areas, I guess. So if anybody wants to comment on that. And I'll, I'll take a shot. I, I, I keep coming to Canadian examples because that's where I'm, I've been involved in the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we have uh, tremendous challenges with uh, recognition of the fundamental treaty rights of the Indigenous peoples of Canada. And while progress looks achingly slow uh, as it's happening, uh, progress is happening, I think, uh, in Canada, uh, and just reflecting on the centralization versus devolved sort of forms of government compared to more central forms of governance. There are advantages and disadvantages of each, I think. So Canada has a very uh, decentralized or devolved approach to natural resource governance to provincial levels, and there are some provinces where change just seems like there's so many obstacles to change and other because of the vested interests and other places where there seems to be more hospitable environments for change and and there are advantages and disadvantages of both in a way there there you know you get change happens at much different rates in different places but there are some positive examples that people can can learn from uh, you know, with a more devolved system. So I, I wonder if overall, if you look across, say, Latin America, whether, and Christian might have a view on this, whether places that have more devolution tend to have more successful 
experiences that can be uh, replicated and emulated in other places, or whether you just get a you just get a patchwork of of situations uh, and political economies in different places that that end up with a uh, you know lots of mediocrity. Do I know reply to that one, Krister? <laughs> I, I I don't. Uh, have a good answer or any examples that come to mind um, yeah on, on devolution I mean it's so context specific and I think it's hard to talk about whether devolution is good or bad or better uh, than what was before because we need a really deep understanding of what was there before and what what this devolution means in that context so like the, the devolution experience in Bolivia is so different from the devolution experience in Peru or, or Ecuador. They all have some elements of devolution in, in their forest policies, for example, but they, they, they look very different and they should all be compared to what was there before to see are things improving or not. Uh, so that's um, hard to get a, a, get a sense yeah. or come up with a general answer to that. But, at least from what I've seen, I haven't seen any, uh, I may be overstating this, but I haven't seen any kind of regression to the mean or mediocrity, as you put it, Brent, as a result of these devolution policies. I, I have not, personally. So uh, that's perhaps the most uh, kind of general statement yeah. that I could make as a response to that. Thanks. Well, we're running out of time and I want to, oh, Ruth, go ahead. Okay, maybe that, maybe actually before I give it to you, Ruth, just to say that I want to give everybody like another 30 seconds each just to say something uh, that they wanted to, to strengthen of some, in their presentation or their responses. And then I'm going to go to Anne for some closing remarks. So maybe Ruth, this, this can be your turn. <laughs> and then I'll pass it around. Sure. Just to say to Daniel, uh, we, We've been addressing some of those trade-offs in games because they help to compress the time frame, um, and our games are now actually being taken up in Ghana. So follow up with me; um, I'd be happy to talk with you more about that. And uh, just to everybody else, how great it is to get this kind of of uh, take on on what needs to be done. Okay. Great. So can I go to uh, Nancy uh, and then? Uh, Nana and then Ed and then back to Krister and Brent and then we'll go to Anne. So over to you Nancy, anything you want to add in? <laughs> I guess just to, again if I think about the researchers and the research that's going on within the CGs especially, I think it's really important to move away from a sole focus on the household level impacts. It, it's dominated, our research is dominated on household. It's important, don't throw the baby out with bathwater, but if you really want to look at, you know, these climate change impacts on institutions, that has to be your level of analysis. So I, I'm going to push that. Good. Thanks, Nancy, very much. Uh, Nana? Hi, yes. Um, I just wanted to say that I think the, uh, for example, an indicator such as 5.8.1 in the SDGs has tremendous promise, you know, in the sense that it's going to bring so much data to the table and try to understand really what's going on. But like Nancy said, it's really focused on more individualized property rights and seeing what the gender disaggregation is at that level. But we really won't be able to see the larger 
picture in terms of the landscape or the tenure niches, but perhaps it's a window through which to start thinking about then that larger scale. Um, and particularly then how women and men use different tenure niches within a landscape and kind of forge a livelihoods um, you know, uh, portfolio. And, uh, and so who knows, you know, I think it'll be very interesting. The day, it's very early days. I think there's only 30 countries that reported on 5.8.1. But um, it'll grow and we'll be able to see really then what's possible um, with that kind of information. Thank you. Thank you, Nana. Uh, Ed. Yeah, I'll just chuck a challenge in, into the environmental soup, if you will. Are we, can we get a better understanding of the environmental benefits back to land use? And not just, most, many people talk about in agroforestry or in other disciplines, the NTFPs and the small little bits and pieces. How can we get a more nuanced understanding of the conservation, biodiversity, water benefits to people and the below soil environmental assets? So we start getting more integrated science and asking more integrated questions of each other. Thanks. Thank you, Ed. Christer? Uh, yeah, thanks. So for me, one of the most compelling things that have come out of not just this webinar, but the series of briefs, I think is the explicit recognition of what the role of the researcher is. And to me, as somebody who's in a very traditional university setting, where you know it's often assumed that we as scientists and researchers, we are not active participants in the process that we study. We just kind of study that by you know by the sidelines, so to speak. But this is different, and I think it's really important to explicitly recognize that researchers can also be part of these processes that we study, and, and landscape governance is certainly one of those. And I think that's refreshing, and I think uh, it also forces us to be explicit about what we value and what we see our own roles as. And perhaps we should start including that in our manuscripts as researchers, too, to be a bit more self, I don't know, forthcoming about what our roles are and what our assumptions are going into the research. Great, thank you, Krister. Uh, and Brent? I guess I, I would end by challenging, especially Ruth and Frank in your situation places now, about bringing the, all this research kind of to higher levels within places like development banks, whether there are opportunities in particular countries working with development banks and national governments to really uh, engage at a higher level and 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 do um, you know get get under, understand historical context, understand political economy context in particular places, but work at a at a at a at a more engaged level with those opportunities. Great, thanks, Brent. Now uh, let me uh, ask Ann to to uh, get on the camera, and uh, Ann Larson is uh, a C C four senior scientist, and she's also been co-leading our flagship on governance and natural resources uh, for the last couple of years with Ruth. So over to you, Anne, for some closing remarks. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, so the first thing I want to say is I'm going to miss Pim so much. <laughs> I can't imagine a webinar with uh, scientists from diverse uh, backgrounds, really, and you know priorities go straight to a discussion of indigenous peoples and local knowledge and the politics of influence and policy and the social, political and empowerment aspects of tenure. 
Um, I just think this has been an incredibly rich discussion and I can't possibly do it justice um, with a very short summary here. Um, just, I wanted to say one thing about the devolution question. Uh, I'd really like Chris's answer about, um, you know, looking at what's happening at, in these uh, decentralized spaces. But the other issue here is we don't have a lot of integrated landscape approaches out there. We're still just starting to look at these to, to see experimentation with integrated landscape approaches. So there's still um, much, much, much to be done. Um, so just in terms of some, what I see as here as kind of the takeaway messages, clearly embrace complexity. Um, quick fix responses, solutions aren't gonna get us very far. Um, there's complexity in terms of scales, in terms of intersectionality, sectors, different interests. We're looking from household to landscape to country to globe, global uh, challenges. And um, I think, you know, the idea of quick fixes, uh, I thought of this when Nana was talking about tenure security and how just giving a title is often seen as the, pro as the solution to the problem of tenure security. And it's so much more than that. I think the other, another thing that comes out of the PIM experience is really the importance of partnerships, especially the deep engagement and collaboration with whoever it is we're working with, but especially local people, local peoples as partners, not as beneficiaries or the people we need to influence, but as uh, real collaborators um, in our search for impact and change on the ground. Um, I think uh, another point in all of this is the understanding of inequality, power, different power levels, different uh, power relations, and the distinct goals and interests that become that are behind so much of what's actually happening in the world and being able to understand that, um, which to me brings to me uh, brings me to the point that many I just saw a, a LinkedIn comment from a new organization that's funding putting funding into landscape something and they're hiring, but none of them are social scientists. The people they're looking for aren't social scientists. We need social scientists uh, looking at these issues. Um, it means, you know, people who have experience on the ground in understanding uh, these kinds of processes and how to characterize them, um, including Krister's comment about voice and finding ways to also give voice to people who are um, not currently influencing policy decisions. So we need scientists that define the complex problems. I, you're probably all familiar with Einstein's quote that if he has an hour to solve a problem, he'll spend 50 minutes defining it and five minutes on the solution. So I think we need to really um, invest in understanding the big problems, the problems on the ground and all their complexity. Um, tenure and governance are two of the most complex uh, topics I can think of, of ever having had to work on. Um, and that makes them exciting, also incredibly challenging. So um, just to finalize saying, think big, think beyond, um, think innovation, um, and you know, really solid understanding of, of the problem itself that we're trying to solve and where we wanna go. Thanks. Thank you very much, Anne. And thanks to all the panelists. That was just wonderful. I, I really enjoyed uh, the, the Q&A uh, and your presentations as well. And I think you've given us a lot of uh, good uh, thoughts for, for moving forward. Um, 
even in the short term from, from Brent and uh, for, for the longer term. And I think this points to one need that we have to keep alive is the, the collective action and property rights program somehow needs to survive at least in some form or function because we obviously, you can tell from this conversation that that's sorely needed as we move ahead in the future. So we'll have to figure out how to do that. <laughs> um, and uh, so uh, in conclusion, just uh, look for the uh, the web the webinar will be posted on the PIM website and please do share the link with colleagues who couldn't join us today. So thanks everyone. <laughs> Bye.